So Jesus himself said, a greater love has no man than this, that he do what? He lay down his life for his friends. Uh, Remembrance Day weekend is a little bit um, unique for me. One is because I'm new to Canada. I've just been here for five years. I didn't know what the poppies were for. I was like, oh, lovely, a little splash of color. That's great. Um, Until somebody explained to me that they stand as a symbol of remembrance for those who have given their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy. And and I don't know uh, about you, but for me, you know, I'm not from here. Um, and, and I come from a country where we enjoy the freedom to worship, uh, but now have the privilege of living in a country where we enjoy the freedom to worship. Many of you uh, come from a country wh- where you don't enjoy the freedom to worship. And there's this old adage, people say this uh, quite often, at least I hear it, like the whole freedom isn't free. You've heard that before, freedom isn't free. Uh, but they become adages, they become things that we say because they're true. Somebody paid a price for our freedom here in Canada. And, and, and really, those poppies and those lives that were given for our freedom point us to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate servant in Jesus who gave his life for your spiritual freedom and uh, for your sake and, 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 and for mine and not for his own. And so this Remembrance Day weekend, especially uh, this Sunday the 11th, Uh, while people all around our country are taking a moment to pause at 11 a.m. on the 11th month, the 11th day, uh, we're going to do the same thing and pause and reflect and remember those who have given their life as the ultimate sacrifice. And as Christians, as believers in Christ, we also look to him who gave it all, the innocent uh, Lamb of God, who when he was um, tortured, didn't speak up, when he was Uh, betrayed and beaten like a lamb before his shearers is silent. He gave his life for you and for me. So let's pause and remember those. Will you just uh, pause in reflection with me? God, I am mindful this morning, um, this Remembrance Day, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You didn't die for us assuming we'd clean up our act with some conditions attached. You went to the cross while we were running headlong in the other direction. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and Thank you really doesn't do it justice, but that's all we can say. Thank you for those who have sacrificed their lives, paid the ultimate price for our freedom here in in Canada. And even for those who put their lives on the line on a regular basis, I think of first responders, even uh, some uh, first responders who are retired now, serving even on our usher team right now, and those who, um, who are willing to give of themselves in order to protect and serve others. We are so grateful for them and so grateful for the ways in which their lives point us to Jesus' life. Speak to us now, O God, through your word. Open our eyes and ears that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In the name of Christ, the people of God, with all kinds of enthusiasm, said, 
Amen. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in a series called Follow. If you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, we're in a series called Follow. Look, you're already caught up. And the reason why we're in this series is because when Jesus calls his very first disciples, we call them, or followers, or, you know, when those guys that followed him around for three years, this was his invitation to them, or even maybe more accurately put, this was his commandment to them, his, his imperative, follow me. And that wouldn't have been odd in first century Judaism because there were a lot of rabbis, and Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the law. He helped interpret the Old Testament, and he gained popularity to some extent, and he gained respect because of his handling of the Word of God, and he became a rabbi. (coughs) And rabbis had groups of followers that would walk around with them and follow them and learn from them and desire to be like them. And those individuals were called the Talmudim. Talmudim being plural, it's the Hebrew word for disciples or followers. And so those very first followers that Jesus called... uh, Mark and John and James and Peter understood themselves as Talmudim. And sometimes we translate that word rabbi as teacher or perhaps even mentor. But it really does not do that word justice because students want to learn from a teacher. Talmudim want to be the rabbi. They want to become just like him. And so these early followers of Jesus followed him around in a desire to become just like him. And the $2 word that we use in church these days is discipleship. Discipleship, because this is what Jesus is calling us to as well. He's calling you and me to be one of the Talmudim, the followers that understand him, that seek to love what he loves and hate what he hates and get passionate about what he gets passionate about and just forget about the things he forgets about. Everything that he did and said and loved and believed, we are supposed to take that in and model our lives after him and become one of the Talmudim, the followers. This is discipleship. But discipleship becomes maybe just a tad more complicated in this day and age because there is no physical Jesus on the planet walking around that we can follow. And it would become a little bit challenging logistically too, being that there are billions of us, right? And so Jesus has uh, died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. (coughs) Excuse me. And now our job is to understand him, learn from him, and still become like him as one of his followers. And the great news is that the Bible doesn't end when Jesus ascends into heaven. In fact, it continues and tells us about the early church, those early Talmudim, those early followers of Jesus. What did they do? in order to create life practices and postures that would make them more like Jesus, to become his disciples, his Talmudim. And and it's recorded in the book of Acts, Acts being short for Acts of the Apostles, and it's really a history of the early church. And so if you have your Bible, I'd love it if you would open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we've been camping out on this passage for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue to talk about it, again, in an effort to understand discipleship, more, more specifically, in an effort to understand what it is exactly that Jesus is calling us to. Because people think, 
that faith in God and Jesus, sometimes they think that it's kind of a cherry on top of your life. You have your life and it's going well and you've got your business and your marriage and your kids. And then if you add just kind of a faith factor, it'll get a little better. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not necessarily calling us even to be spiritual people that kind of, you know, mentally and spiritually transcend circumstances around us, although maybe some of that can take place. What he's calling us to do is be a Talmudim, a follower, a Christian, which literally means little Christ, a mini-me is what he's calling you to be. So how do we do that? Well, we can follow an example of the early church, what the Book of Acts tells us in uh, Acts 2, verse 42, is that they devoted themselves. Now, I just want to stop there and talk about this word for a minute because it's so critical to understand how the early church thought of their lives and thought of their postures and practices in light of this calling to be a disciple. This word devoted, uh, the definition in modern terms is this, to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of difficulty. Like I would say, I am devoted to finding a store near to me that sells Twinkies. I'm devoted to that. It's difficult at times, but I love Twinkies. Do you have Twinkies in Canada? Do you know Twinkies? Would you be devoted to that with me? No, that's beside the point. Point is, to continue to do something with intense effort, the possible implications of difficulty. These early followers of Christ knew it was going to get challenging. It wasn't going to be easy all the time, but they were devoted to this, to devote oneself to, to, to keep on, to persist in, to persevere. In fact, that word devote in the original language in Greek that your Bible's written in is proskuneo, and translated directly, literally, it means to kiss toward. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Like to kiss toward, that's it's like, is that like my daughter, she's four, like when she blows a kiss at me, like, you know, daddy, I kiss toward you and you catch it and put it on your cheek. No, here's what it means. When someone who was superior to you, like a king or whatever, approached you, here's what you would do in that culture. You would prostrate yourself before them and kiss the ground and say, I am subjecting myself to you. I'm placing myself underneath your authority. I'm acknowledging that you are greater than me. So listen, listen. In fact, that word proskuneo, other places in the scripture, is translated worship. Worship. So what Luke is saying, he's not saying they worshipped the, these things, the apostles teaching the breaking bread, the prayers, and, and the fellowship. He's not saying they worshipped those things, but they took their life and they brought their life underneath the authority of those things. Do you see it? I want to tell you a quick story that I heard in my life group this week. Again, it's just an effort to help us understand what Jesus is calling us to. We, we did this thing in our life group this week where um, each person in our life group brought an object that represented something about them, an object that had maybe some stories attached to it so we could get to know each other better. So I brought my guitar, and I, I said, here's my guitar, here's what I got it, and here's my background and all this stuff. It's got some stories attached to it. I told everybody those stories. Somebody in our group, um, our group leader, in fact, he said, you know what, to really get to know me, here's what you need to know. And he pulled out a box of pasta. He's like, I love pasta. And I'm going... I thought this was supposed to be like an actual exercise, not a joke exercise, right? This is our leader telling us, what you need to know about me is I love pasta. And I'm not going to tell you his name, but it's Christian Laguine. He's the one that did that. And to pull out a box of pasta, I'm like, this is the silliest thing I've ever seen, but whatever. And so then somebody in our group, we got around to a guy, and he pulled out a little Ziploc baggie full of acrylic paints. 
And he had paintbrushes in there and, 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 and acrylic paints. And I'm like, well, this is strange. Where is this going? He said, you know, in my earliest memories of my father, I remember coming downstairs when I was a kid and I saw my dad painting. My dad was an artist. I saw him painting in the living room. And on the weekends, he would spend his time painting. And I began to love art like my dad loved art. Maybe even more significantly, he said, I began to love my dad. And so he says, as I grew, I made a choice to systematically restructure my life so I could become more like my dad. Can you imagine that? He said, I systematically restructured my life or systematically structured my life so that I could become more like my dad. He said, my dad went to art school, so I went to art school. My dad went to teacher's college, so I went to teacher's college. My dad talked a certain way, so I talked like that. My dad did certain things with his time, so I did those things with my time. I wanted to be just like my dad. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, this is discipleship. It is a systematic restructuring of your life in order to become like Jesus. That's what that is. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Does that sound like the cherry on top of a life that's going well already? Does that sound like some little addition to something? You know, I've got one through nine and Jesus is ten. No, it's an exchange life. It's trading in one thing for another. In fact, I looked at all the places in the scripture this week, at least most of them, where Jesus calls people to follow him. And you know, by and large, the vast majority of those times, he says, follow me, die to yourself. Follow me, take up your cross. Those two things are always put together. Why? Because becoming a Talmudim, a disciple, means that my whole life is traded in for a restructuring to become like Jesus. This is discipleship. And last week, what we talked about was discovering a life connected to God and others. That was the first D of discipleship as we seek to define what that is. We are discovering a life connected to God and others. God has poured his grace out on us, so we pour our grace out on others. God has poured his love out on us, so we pour our love out on others. Once we were strangers and aliens, now we've been brought near, and we learn to live a life near to God, close to God, and also connected in the community of faith. We, we went so far as to say that those two things, being connected to God and connected to others, are inextricably bound. You cannot pull them apart. This is why John says to us, if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is, uh, say that word with me, liar. And he's not, trying to, he's not trying to like shame us or anything. He's just saying, well, those two things don't compute. They don't exist together. So the first D of discipleship is discovering a life connected to God and others. And so today we're on that second D of discipleship. That second D of discipleship. Before we get there, I want to read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, actually 41 through 47, in the message version. Because what we've done the last couple weeks, we've read it in the English Standard Version, which is the inspired version, by the way. But the message really kind of helps us see it from a different perspective and understand what it is the early church is doing in terms of these postures and practices. And here's what Luke writes uh, from the message. He says, that day about 3,000 took him at his word. The hymn here is Peter. Peter's just preached the gospel. He said, repent and believe. And about 3,000 people took him at his word, were baptized, and signed up. <coughs> they committed themselves, that's the devotion piece, to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. 
They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful, as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw, and every day their number grew as God added to those uh, God added those who were being saved. This is the early church. These are the postures and practices that they engaged in in order to become more like Jesus. It's as if the potter, that would be God, is molding the clay to become more and more in the image of Jesus. Now, again, here's what we did last week. We talked about the fact that they devoted themselves to two things, a fellowship and breaking of bread. And those two things are reflected in our statement that we are discovering a life connected to God and others. So that's the first D of discipleship. Here's the second D. They devoted themselves to <coughs> the apostles' teaching and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayers. The apostles' teaching there is those early disciples who were talking about what they saw in terms of Jesus in the Old Testament, and it was also their letters to the early church and their teaching verbally of the good news about Jesus. And they devoted themselves to those things. They placed their life under the care of those things. They allowed the apostles' teaching and prayer to shape who they were. So our second D of discipleship is this. We are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. And if you are jotting notes down, please jot this down. And if you call this place home, please understand that these four D's will become the foundation for everything we do here in terms of children's ministry, in terms of what we do here, in terms of life groups. This is what we want to do. We want to make disciples. And disciples are always discovering a life connected to God and others. And disciples are ever dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. And I want you to know, go back one, I want you to know that We've chosen these words and even these verb tenses really strategically. No one is ever done being dedicated. We don't, we're not in the past tense. I've dedicated myself to God's. No, every day, a little more dedicated. We're dedicating ourselves, plural, in our individualistic society. Sometimes we understand that our faith life or we believe that our faith life is an individualistic endeavor. That would have been so foreign to the first century mind, it's just unbelievable. This is a communal effort, all of us together, together becoming more and more like Jesus, dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. So, so here's the statement of commitment. We are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Would you say that with me? We are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Understand that dedicating means I'm allowing those things to shape me, to define me, to grow me, to be the tools that the potter uses to shape me, the clay, into what he intends for me. Say it one more time with me. We are dedicating ourselves. All right, now let's talk about God's word. We'll go one at a time. We'll talk about God's word. A lot of people misunderstand the purpose of God's word. People understand it as God's rule book, not God's rule book at all. Like everybody just shake your head and go, it's not God's rule book. Okay, it's not God's rule book. It's just not God's rule book. And if you see it as God's rule book and you try to dedicate yourself to it as God's rule book, you're going to get really frustrated really, really quickly, like trying to scramble an egg with a sledgehammer. That's not what it's for. It's not what it's for. It's for something totally different, okay? 
God's word is not basic instructions before leaving earth, which I always think is funny because it feels like an alien abduction or something, right? <laughs> basic instructions before a UFO comes a tractor beam and pulls you off there. That's not the purpose of God's word. God's word helps us first to understand ourselves or see ourselves or locate ourselves within God's story. So here's what God is up to. He created all things perfect. We entered the picture, rebelled from God, and ruptured the perfect creation that God had in mind. We see all the consequences of that recorded in the Old Testament, and even we see the consequences of that now as we live. But Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom which is not yet complete. And one day he's going to come back and complete that kingdom, make all things new, and consummate the kingdom. But in the meantime, <coughs> as his Talmudine, as his disciples, as his followers, our job is to move the kingdom forward, to bring goodness where there was not goodness, to bring peace where there was violence, to bring joy where there was fear. All the things that God's kingdom uh, uh, demands from us, all the things that God's kingdom brings, we are responsible now for living that out and bringing a message of reconciliation in the world. And so as we read the scripture, what we understand is where we're located in God's story. What's our responsibility? Responsibility. What's our job? What are the things that we push back up against? What are the things that we want to move forward? How is it that I can live my life such that I can roll back the effects of sin and see the kingdom of God at work in every aspect of who I am? That's what the scripture does. That's a different lens, isn't it? And the scripture also helps us understand God's purpose for us. Do you know that God has a purpose for you? He has a goal in mind, so much so that before you were even a twinkle in your daddy's eye, God had a plan for you. He created good works far in advance of your life in order for you to do. Opportunities for you to bring the kingdom. He's got a purpose for you. And the scripture helps to shape that purpose. So here's the deal. The scripture is so extraordinarily valuable. It helps us to see ourselves within the context of God's story. Helps us figure out our purpose, which so many of us are doing. What's God's purpose for me? What's God's purpose for me? What's God's purpose for me? Well, God's purpose for you is right there in the Bible. So many answers. So much hope there. So here's my question. Why don't we do it. Because my assumption here this morning is that for everybody in this room, four or 500 people, whatever it is, that we wouldn't all say, you know what? I read the scripture a lot. I mean, my life from, from dawn to dusk is I'm just, re I'm, a, I'm a Bible reader, man. Like most of us would say, man, I don't think I read the Bible as much as I should or, or as much as I'd like to really. So, so here's my question. Why don't we? Why don't we? Hmm. <laughs> it's funny. I think the first reason is actually reflected in um, highlights I was watching of, a, of the Jimmy Kimmel show. Do you guys watch Jimmy Kimmel? I don't know if it's a family program. I don't know. But I was watching highlights on my phone. And Jimmy Kimmel did this thing where he sends out, I'm like a man on the street, and they go and they interview people. And, and the, the, the interview this time was, what's your favorite novel? <coughs> they were asking people on the street, what's your favorite novel? And the reason why is because uh, just recently in the United States, a survey came out that said America's favorite novel is To Kill a Mockingbird. That's America's favorite novel. And Jimmy Kimmel said, I don't think America's favorite novel is To Kill a Mockingbird. I think To Kill a Mockingbird is America's favorite novel to say is their favorite novel. I'm not sure America actually reads this stuff. Sure enough, they sent people out on the street and they asked people, what's your favorite novel? And people were like, I don't really read. 
Like, what's your favorite novel? ESPN? Well, that's not a, not a novel. Or what's your, literally, somebody asked, what's your favorite novel? Les Miserables. Ooh, cool. They got it. A novel, right? Oh, it's a very, very long novel. How long did it take you to read Les Miserables? Well, I haven't read it, but the movie's so good. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Why don't we do it? Why don't we engage with the Scripture and let it shape our life? It's, simply put, we don't read stuff. We don't. Just in general, we don't read stuff. And Canadians, you think you're better than Americans? You are not better than Americans. You may be a little bit, but not a lot. We, don't, we, we just don't read a lot of stuff. So when it comes to the Scripture, we, we've got all kinds of reasons why we don't read it. And, and, and if you want to kind of get into this further, we talked about this in our series called the B-I-B-L-E. All those messages are online. You can jump on, listen to them, or watch them. <laughs> but I want to address directly four reasons that I hear people say, I don't read the Bible because we don't understand it. We don't understand it. I would tell you, the Bible is difficult to understand at times. There's, mm, we're a long time removed in terms of time from when the Bible was written. We're a lot of space away, miles and miles and miles away from the original culture and context. So many things, that uh, gaps that we have to bridge. And so here would be my encouragement to you if you're like, man, I don't really understand the Bible. Here would be my encouragement. Take your time. Take your time. Just choose one verse. Read it. Let it saturate your soul and your heart. Let it be in your mind. Don't go out and seek to understand Leviticus or how the books of the Kings and Chronicles interact with one another. Don't try to understand, you know, Matthew's, you know, ecclesiology. I mean, don't, 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 don't. Pick one verse, John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you may have what? Life and life abundantly. Just pick one. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is not complicated to understand. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. That is not difficult to understand. This much, choose this much, and take your time, and allow the Bible, God's word, to be what shapes you into the likeness of Christ. Number two, people say, I'm confused. <coughs> I'm confused. When I read the Bible, it's something similar to, uh, similar to I don't understand it. Mm. But I read long passages and I get kind of overwhelmed. I would encourage you to begin to use a tool, employ a tool to help you kind of boil down a scripture or a passage into its main point. And here's one of many. It's called REAP. We talked about this in our B-A-B-L-E series, but again, it's read, examine, apply, and pray. I know I went through that really quickly, but stick with me here. You start with reading. Just read a passage a couple times. Read John chapter 1 a couple times. It will not take you that long. It's like a commercial break. It won't take you that long, okay? Read it. Then examine it and make observations. You're not trying to apply it. You're not asking yourself, what does it mean? You're simply asking yourself, what does it say? Examine it. Make observations. Then apply. Pick one. 
Pick one thing that I need to be reminded of today. One sin that I need to confess. One way that I need to be encouraged. One piece of hope that this can bring to my life. And then pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Amen. Not complicated. And it helps you boil it down and keep you from being confused by reading, examining, applying, and then praying. People say all the time to me, number three, it's too big. It's too big. How many of you, how many of you did you grow up in a, in a home where your uh, parents or your family had a really big, thick, holy book of any kind? Quran, Bible, anybody have one of those big, thick ones that it's like, Oh my gosh, the bookmark is like the size of my arm. Like, this is crazy. Anybody grow up in a house like that? My parents did. They had one on display. I mean, it was just a big, big book. And it just feels so daunting. There's just so much content there. There's so much. Have you heard this before? Ready? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. So it's too big? Just eat an elephant. One bite at a time. One little bite at a time. Choose something short and small. Can I give you a hint? For those of you who are like, oh my gosh, this is the best sermon ever. He told me to choose something short. I am so grateful for this. This is amazing. Can I, can I give you even a, more be, a, a better tip? A more better tip is what I was about to say. More better? More betterest? Um, a better tip? The shortest book in the Old Testament is Obadiah. The shortest book in the New Testament is 2 John. Pick those up. Look, I see people writing those down. Oh, thank God. The short ones. The short ones. Good. The short ones. It's amazing. I read 2 John last night. It's amazing. Just because it's short doesn't mean there's not amazing things in there. And don't get caught up in going, oh my gosh, i got to read through the Psalms. Longest book in the Bible, right? Or numbers. Not just long, but like, what is going on here, right? Pick something small. Like something small and just take it one bite at a time. Because even though it's small or short does not mean it's not going to shape you. We get bored. People say, I get bored. I'm bored of the Bible. I read it. I get bored. First of all, you're not reading the same Bible I am if you're getting bored, number one. Mm. Number two, here's a tip to make it less boring. You ready? Involve other people. Talk about it. When I talk about Scripture with my life group, it comes alive in a very unique way because people see it from a different perspective. They're applying it in different parts of their life. And it makes it come alive. It illuminates the Scripture. It makes it pop in unique ways. Look, look, look. When I talk about the Bible with my children, Canaan, not so much. He's three months old. So, I mean, I talk about the Bible and then he throws up. Okay, good, perfect. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, last night or the night before, I, I brought Kaya into her room. She was having a little bit of an attitude situation, a little Judy attitude if you know what I mean. And so I brought her into her room, and I picked her up, and we did what we always do. I said, Kaya, we're going to have a little chit-chat. And what that means is I'm real mad, and you're going to hear about it, right? So we're going to have a little chit-chat. Your attitude has been bad all day. Since I picked you up from school, you've been disobedient. You've been slow to obey. You've been talking back. You've been whining. And I'm not kidding you. My kid is locked eyes the whole time. She's listening to me. She knows I'm angry. She literally goes like this. Children, obey your parents in the ward, for this is white. And at that point, I just, I said, you know what, you're, you're using the scripture to defend your own behavior, and it's very pharisaical, and that's a sin too. Um, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so. 
You know, when we bless Canaan every night, we use a scripture, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you've got children and baby kids right now, they're learning about the Bible right now. Ask them what they learned this morning. And if they, said, if they say, I don't know, you tell them Pastor Lucas said that they're a liar. And then you can, no, they do know. They do know. You don't, don't tell them I said they're a liar. <coughs> Ask them. Talk about the Bible with your kids. Talk about the Bible with your spouse. Mm. Talk about the Bible with your friends and family. Talk about it with your life group. Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Because it removes that thing of, ah, it's got a little boring. It's got a little stale. It's got a little old. Talk about it. That'll help. Now let's talk about that second tool that God uses, the, the potter to shape us, mold the clay into what he wants us to be. And that's prayer, prayer. And people, again, confuse prayer. They think prayer is an opportunity to bring my laundry list of suggestions and recommendations before God. I do this all the time. I do this all the time. I, I just as a matter of confession. This is not what prayer is for, but I still, I do it. I'm like, you know, God, heal this person. God, I'd really like a 1968 Camaro Z28. You know, whatever it is. And I bring kind of this list of suggestions and recommendations before God. But that's not really what God, that's not really what prayer is for. Prayer is not designed to align God's will with ours. You get it? Prayer is designed to align our will with God's. And that's a different way to see prayer. Prayer is a tool God uses to form us, mold us, to align us, to change us. It's part of the ways that we engage in a systematic restructuring of our life so that God can mold us into the likeness of Christ. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? I, I don't know if I've ever met a person in my life that, says, that would say, I pray plenty. Almost everybody I've ever met, in fact, to a person has said, I could always pray more. Even people I know who are just prayer people, always praying, they would say, I would always pray more. I've never heard of somebody on their deathbed saying, you know what, you know what my number one regret is in life? I spent way too much time praying. Just too much time praying. I could have done other stuff. Oh, this prayer is so valuable, so why don't we do it? All kinds of reasons. One, we're purposeless. We're purposeless. We start this prayer thing without kind of a plan in place, without kind of a, a grid or a structure to help us walk through it. So here would be my suggestion, create a plan. If you find yourself engaging in prayer and then like 10 minutes later, confess, tell me now, don't lie, you're in church, ready? Tell me, when, did, is anybody started to pray at any point this week and five minutes in, you're making your grocery list in your mind? Okay, or, or, or you're writing your workout. That's what I do in my mind. It's like five minutes in. That's a lot of times because we go in haphazard. We haven't created a plan. I've got a friend here that uh, prays after every service, and he uses the same kind of step-by-step uh, -step process every time. Confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. I confess, I adore God, I thank God, and then I bring my request before him. Create a plan. Create a structure. Who am I going to pray for? What am I going to pray for? For how long am I going to do it? Create a plan. Nobody goes into an exercise program and picks up five-pound dumbbells and just flings them all around like this and expects results. It doesn't work that way. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a strategy. You've got to have a structure. And it keeps you in prayer. Lots of times we forget, right? We forget to pray. We go through our day and we get to the end of it and we're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot to pray today. And then we're like, okay, my head's going to hit the pillow and I'm going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. Here's my question. How's that go for you? Not that great, right? We forget to pray. So here's my deal. Create reminders. 
Create reminders. We think sometimes that prayer has got to be this 30 or 40 minutes in the morning, 30 or 40 minutes in the evening that I set aside, and I'm in this quiet room, and there's like some Enya playing or something like that, and then that's what I do. That's how I pray. But prayer is an ongoing conversation. The Bible actually encourages us to pray without ceasing. That does not mean keep your eyes closed at all times like this. We'd have much more accidents on the 401 if you did that. Don't do that. What it means is you can always be talking to God. So create reminders that are part of your daily routine. I'll give you a couple of suggestions. One, a friend in university that went to Kenya on a mission trip, he was a physician, and he worked with uh, children that were experiencing urinary tract infections. And they were trying to deal with those urinary tract infections and to cure them with medication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the reminder he created in his life. Every time he goes to the washroom, he prays for those kids. You think that's weird? That's fine. I think it's weird too. But it's still a good reminder, isn't it? Because you're not going to forget to go to the washroom. And if you create that reminder, you can be reminded to pray for somebody. I had a friend in university that every time he tied his left shoe, his left shoe, he prayed for me. What is it that's part of your normal routine? Coffee, breakfast, gym, What is it that's part of your day in and day out that you can say, every time I do this, I'm going to pray. Every time I do this, I'm going to pray. Create reminders. Number three, a lot of times we don't see results. We don't see results in our prayer. We we say, man, I'm praying all the time and I don't see results. Praying all the time, I don't see results. Can I tell you something? There are results. You just haven't tracked them. This is why people, when they engage in a diet and exercise plan, they take a before and after picture, you know? It's because they look at their body and they go, I've changed. I'm different. So here's the deal. Track it and create a log. Keep a log. I'm not going to say keep a journal because that makes me feel like I'm a Taylor Swift fan and I'm not. You know, like like I'm 13 and dear diary, you know, my crush came into my homeroom this morning. You know, like that's that's log. It sounds far more masculine, isn't it? It's like a a logger. Keep a log. Uh, I threw our life group leader under the bus here a few minutes ago. I'm going to actually uh, encourage and elevate him right now because one of the things he's doing right now is that as we share within our life group our prayer requests, they're all recorded in a WhatsApp group so everybody can see them. And we shared week one life group, what's your prayer request? Everybody shared prayer requests. We prayed for one another. The next week we saw results. Next week. So God answered that prayer. Awesome. Isn't that great? So there are results, we just don't see them because we're not keeping a log. Keep a log on a Pinterest page. Keep a log on your Facebook. Keep a log on your phone, on your notes app. Keep a log somewhere of things you're praying for and see God answer those prayers. We get bored praying. We get bored. A lot of times people are like, man, I've prayed for a long time. I've prayed for, you know, you know, for a lot of years or a lot of days or whatever. I would just encourage you, to get creative, to incorporate some different ways to pray that might shift the way you understand and engage with prayer. Pray through the scripture. Read the Bible and allow the the language of the Bible to become your language of prayer. Sit and listen to God rather than just bring everything before him. Just sit and be quiet before him. Uh, Read some of the early church fathers and the way that they prayed. Go on a prayer walk. I've heard people doing this before. Walk around your neighborhood. I'm praying for the person in that house. I'm praying for the person in that house. There's things that are going to remind me of different things in my life that I can pray for. And going on a prayer walk actually keeps you from falling asleep too, so that's good, right? 
Get creative and inject new life in your prayer life so that God can use those two things, our dedication to his word and prayer, to shape us into the image of Jesus. One more thing I want to say before we're done here, and it's this. In uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, uh, there's this verse that says they uh, dedicated themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And that's what we'll continue to talk about, discovering a life connected to God and others, dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. And just before this verse, what you have is a heading called the Fellowship of Believers. And essentially, editors added this after the fact. This is not in the original language. This, you know, Luke didn't put headings in the book of Acts. But the editors put that there just to help us track through the Scripture and understand what we're about to read. Now, the verse before it says this. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day, added that day about 3,000 souls. And because this heading is here, a lot of times mentally, we disconnect this verse from this verse. The reality is they are connected in the original language. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to remove the heading. We're going to take a look at these two verses side by side. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Who was it that systematically restructured their life in order to become like Jesus? Well, they. They did. They became disciples. They became Talmudim. Well, who are they? It's these 3,000 souls. And when did they say yes to Jesus? That day. These are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that had gathered in Jerusalem for a Jewish celebration. They heard the good news about Jesus. They responded with a yes, and immediately their lives changed. Immediately, they made a choice to be different, to live different, to engage in postures and practices so that God could form them into his likeness, systematically restructuring their life to be a disciple of Christ. So here's what I want to tell you today. No matter what language you spoke growing up, no matter what language you speak now, no matter what you do for a living, no matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, whether it's 50 or 60 years or whether you're just in this place checking out faith, here's the deal. Discipleship is for you. It's for you. God is so gracious to open this door so wide for each of us. He just says, you don't have to go to this class. You don't have to jump through these hoops. You don't have to just come learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. I am gentle and humble in heart. Walk alongside me. Discipleship is for you. And here's the great news. If we had a whole lot of people on the planet that lived, act, and loved like Jesus did, the planet would be different, wouldn't it? In a good way. Man, I don't know about you, but I watched the news this week. We need a lot more little Jesuses running around. So that is our commitment to engage in this process, each and every one of us, this discipleship process, to always discovering a life connected to God and others, dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer, those postures and practices, forming us into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray together. A lot of scripture this morning, and we said a lot. So my encouragement to you, my invitation to you just in this moment would be to ask God, is there something that I can do in terms of my next step? 
creating a habit of Bible reading, getting into a situation where you can talk to others about God's Word, beginning to keep a log in your prayer life, engaging in some different kind of prayer, praying the Scriptures or listening prayer, just taking one book of the Bible to get to know it a little bit. What is it? What's that next step that you can take so that God's Word, Bible, and your prayer life become tools in the hands of the potter that are forming you the clay into the likeness of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. Thank you for speaking to us today. Impress upon the hearts of those who are here that next step and give us the courage, the fortitude, the perseverance to continue to engage in these postures and practices to become Talmudim, your disciples. In Christ's name, the people of God together said,